and welcome to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Josh Rosenfield, here with Soren Howe. We're talking about episode 6 of season 1, called Plague. Uh, apt title, for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, this is... Uh, oh, I just noticed another Davis Guggenheim, uh, Davis, Davis Guggenheim episode. Um, there you go. So we can certainly get into that. We've talked about his... Uh, Filmmaking on the show, at least twice now. I think. I think he's done at least two episodes. I think so. Yeah, I think he did one or two episodes in the beginning, or a couple episodes ago. So. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's also speaking of the title. Um, I like I like the title of this episode, uh, especially since it's not actually plague. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny. Um, but uh, next episode is not to jump all the way to the next episode, but the next episode is, I think Seth returns to camp or something. <laughs> and it's just very matter-of-fact. That's the yeah, whole level title, which I'm sure is not the only thing that happens in that episode, but it's one of the more boring titles uh, relative to the rest of them. Um, I tend to actually really like the titles in, in Deadwood, and actually, as I was looking forward, um, just scanning the titles of future episodes, because I had forgotten. They don't tell you anything. For the most part, they don't tell you anything about what's going to happen. They get more and more sort of obscure, oh. um, but there are some really, really fantastic ones in the future. So. All right, cool. Um, but Seth Comes Camp is not, or, you know, <laughs> Camp is not, not among them. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, I actually wanted to talk about, I really like the way, speaking of filmmaking, I didn't have a lot of filmmaking notes on this particular episode, um, except for, like, one small element, but uh, there was a little bit of interesting, uh, or something interesting uh, about the opening scene and the way it starts. I think it felt a bit different than other um, episodes of the show. What do you think? Of, what do you think of the opening? Um, I really dug it. It was again very uh, Deadwood traffics in the unexpected a lot, <laughs> <laughs> and this was certainly a good example. I like. Um, I guess I just like how it. Uh, it plays out in such a way that it, it's all very, like, uh, it's almost a dreamlike sequence in some ways mm. in, in terms of how it's presented as, you know, surreal. Surreal isn't the right word. That's obviously a kind of a, an overused word, I think. Um, but it's very much presented, uh, you know, like I said, like dreamlike. It's, it's, uh, it's all very uh, kind of odd angles and... Uh, mm. You know, especially once uh, once Bullock kind of starts to get injured, stuff kind of starts to yeah. devolve into into this very kind of off kilter uh, uh, sense. It's, it's a curious way to open an episode, um, but cool. That's exactly that's actually exactly what I was going to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> um, about the filmmaking was was that specific. Um, I'm glad you noticed it too. So it's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I like um, what it's cool about this storyline is. It's almost. It's, I almost want to see it edited together all as one um, scene to see what it looks like, because it, it almost feels like it would make a really great little short film. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a really good short film, actually. No more than thinking that I really want to see this edited, <laughs> because um, so it opens up with this really beautiful. And the reason I say that is it's specifically bookended in the same way, and that's why I think it's interesting. Um, it it opens with this dead silent frontier and you don't hear anything except for the wind and the trees creaking and it's just cutting around showing these i mean it's beautiful 
it's really beautiful. But and then sort of backdrop to that, you can hear the the chimes on the uh, on the I guess their funeral like I don't know constructs. I don't say pyres because it'll burn, but um, you know what I'm talking about. It's where they end up putting the body at the end. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. We, we have that in the beginning. We have that sound. We have that motif, and then it comes back later um, to close off that sequence that that narrative sequence and so i think aside from the fact that it wouldn't make well i guess it wouldn't even matter if you didn't like if this were a short film out of context we don't really need to know who seth is we don't know who the indian guy is and we don't know why they're fighting and we don't really need to know who charlie is just that he's a friend of seth's clearly Mm -hmm. um and yeah so i think it it would actually work quite well but in any case um yeah, I really like that, and I like you're right. It, it does kind of feel sort of dreamlike. Um, it's a fight sequence that's quick and brutal and short, and uh, you can follow it, which makes it um, very different than what we often get in other shows. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> um, and uh, and there's a lot of really great imagery, and a lot of it's communicated wordlessly, and I think it's really interesting in that way too. Um, yeah, it's funny. Not much ha- like it, like on paper, not much happens, but so much. There's so much interesting about how this whole encounter is is conveyed that it's so anonymous that you know the horses look different, which um, is how Charlie puts together the whole scene uh, really quickly when hmm. he shows up, and um, and then you have these moments where you know Seth you know beats this guy to death and has blood all over his face and just looks like something out of a nightmare um for that for that moment and i just you know all of it comes together in this you're right and it's i wouldn't say surreal because i feel like uh, you're right that does and i think it maybe overstates it it's it's more subtle than that it doesn't feel removed from reality but it does feel almost self-contained in a way yeah exactly it's not um it's not unreal which is kind of what surreal implies that it's something you know uh beyond um like i remember when i when i started to watch twin peaks and i kind of I I feel the same way about the word Lynchian, or a similar way, how it's kind of used to, uh, it's so often used uh, incorrectly in that, you know, first of all, there's more to a David Lynch film than just being weird, and that's, just, that's what people <laughs> just there? use that word for, is if you call something, they call something Lynchian, it just means that it's weird, um, and I think that the word Lynchian can have different applications if you are, you know, if you're going in with an under, uh, a broader understanding of kind of the central themes of his work. Um, but I remember when I started to watch Twin Peaks and uh, the word that ever, because it was a more popular show, uh, than pretty much anything else he'd done, um, like people who wouldn't have ever seen any of his other films, maybe, uh, had watched Twin Peaks when it was on. And the word was always that it was uh, such a surreal show. And Twin Peaks really isn't a surreal show. Um, it's a very strange show. It's definitely, it's definitely kind of, like I said, it's an off kilter and, um, uh, off kind of uncomfortable <laughs> at times um but i wouldn't necessarily call it uh surreal it's just it has its own um kind of uh internal sense of reasoning uh that doesn't necessarily make sense all the time to from an exterior perspective um but it's never like uh it, it's very rarely just kind of just weird stuff is happening are, uh, and certainly there are. It has its moments. Uh, but would you would you call Mulholland Drive surreal? 
Um, no, I don't think I would. That's really? the thing. I mean, I think it has surreal moments, definitely. Moments, yeah. I, would I mean, the thing, you know, the monster behind the dumpster certainly is up there. Um, the stuff in the in the Club Silencio, definitely. You know, it had it definitely has these very dreamlike. And I guess those are the two words that uh, you don't want to confuse, right? Surreal and dreamlike. Uh, I mean, Mulholland Drive is, uh, depending on your interpretation, literally dreamlike. Um, yeah, right. it, or you know, it's very. It is. I think it's. I don't think it's an unfa- unfair interpretation. Kind of. It is largely uh, fantasy, but it's not necessarily like. I don't know. I, I'm trying to define the. I don't want to get stuck on this. I'm just trying to define what I would think of as surreal. I know. Well, certainly this scene in Deadwood isn't, but it is. Um, it comes near enough to that uh that it uh it comes near enough to sur- to that surreality uh to make an impression or to kind of implicate it kind of evokes it I ex- ex- that, yes exactly that's what i'm thinking of it evokes uh surreality without necessarily uh going that far and that's what i that's what i dug about it i also like um the way that the fight turns around uh, Bullock seems to be completely screwed uh, yeah. as soon as, uh, you know, he's kind of knocked off his horse. But he manages to get back on top, and it's a very... Again, it contributes to that kind of, you know, that offness, uh, the way that he's able to regain the upper hand is like... It's it's well, it it's, like it's strange that he's able to do it at all. At, first. at least that's what it seemed like. Like he was saying, like I don't want to fight you or whatever. When he's like grabbing onto his leg, yeah, um, yeah. the first time, exactly. And then the second time, he's like, you know, he uses it to his advantage, which was was very interesting. Um, but I just, I as they were fighting, I was just thinking to myself how. I mean, clearly, he was attacked because it was sort of a vengeance for whoever this other guy who was killed before, right. And certainly there's any number of reasons <laughs> why a frontier person might be attacked by somebody, you know, native to the actual land. But um, what I just find interesting is that these particular two people are not in any way actually acquainted, are not, don't have a personal, and yet the fight feels so personal. And I just, I think just socially, contextually, in the, the context of society and at the, you know, that time period, that these two sort of opposing forces can just meet in the wilderness where there's they make it very clear there's no one else there's nothing forcing them to do anything and certainly seth isn't out looking for this guy although you know um it's not like this person knows you know that Mm -hmm. their life isn't in danger um but they do provoke the the fight and it's just interesting seeing that um this is all predicated on like what people they know have done and not actually on themselves or a provocation from either party until the first arrow flies. Um, and I also liked the idea that there was this justification for the fact that uh, the Indian guy doesn't shoot him just right off the bat with an arrow. That it was because he had to... There were certain things that he had done in combat that that, that Charlie explains later, and that was why he wanted to fight him sort of one-on-one. Yeah. Um, which I thought was really interesting. It's, it's also interesting that... Um... That's the exact same reason why Bullock is out there, right? I mean, he's also out to... Uh... Yeah, get oh, very true. For, get revenge for some his friend who's been killed. Mm. Um, so it's a it's a cool uh, once we once we discover that that's what's going on, it reframes the 
fight in an interesting way. And maybe uh, if you take it as foreshadowing, bodes ill <laughs> for <laughs> his eventual meeting with Jack McCall, assuming that he finds him. Uh, but mm. I guess we'll see. Right. No, actually, it's funny. I connected the bodies and the idea of burying um, to Bill because of Seth's involvement, but I didn't think about, I didn't go back and rethink the conflict as being a very similar thing. And and you're right, it is. Although I would say the only slight difference is uh, Seth is looking for the specific person who did it. And this guy seemed to just be content with whoever <laughs> showed up on the yeah. Um But yes, yeah, no, there's there's definitely that pair. Uh, parallel, and I also found it interesting that that Charlie. So Charlie seems to have this a lot of knowledge about, um, about the culture, which I I guess he's he got from hanging out with Bill, or because he he did mention at some point. I think they mentioned that they had been involved in some raids, or they were I don't know. There was something where they, but he seems to know a lot more about um, specific cultural rituals. He even knows not to bury the guy that he wants to be, you know, facing the West and be on this whatever the structure is, um, which is very different than, you know, what, what Seth was, was planning. Um, but I also like that at first he's really resi- uh, resistant to the idea, even though he knows more about the culture, he's like, yeah, no, 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 he would rather be do- buried that or whatever, treated that way, but it doesn't matter. We shouldn't waste time. We should just go somewhere else. And the next time we see him, he's actually helping Seth. Um, and he sees, sort of sees the, I guess, the parallel that we just talked about of, uh, of I guess, doing the right thing and, and understanding that the, he was fighting for someone who he loved who died, um, which is exactly what they were trying to do. So, yeah, it's just a great little. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, and it. I mean, that goes back to what we've been talking about with uh, with Seth and his sense of uh, justice and righteousness. Um, even someone who <laughs> snuck up on him and tried to kill him, he still affords the uh, respect of a uh, of laying him to rest properly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's nice. And again, it's. I don't know how much I've talked about this, but. One thing that's really, and we can, and we'll talk about it in a scene more later. One thing that's struck me more than anything else about Deadwood, in terms of my expectations, is uh, how many people on this show are like uh, nice. Um, <laughs> you know, like when, when you think of think of HBO dramas and think of how like, you know, like the, I love The Sopranos, but everyone on that show is a dick. Every every last one of them, and that doesn't mean they're not you know they can't be kind of likable characters and you know however much of that matters. Or and it doesn't mean that they can't be you know uh, that I can't enjoy and watching them and be compelled by them. Um, but they're all just awful, <laughs> mm. almost almost all the way around. Um, and that was my expectation. And you know it's similar on Game of Thrones too. Uh, and that's just my expectation going into an HBO drama. Uh, in terms of uh, you know the grittiness and the nastiness and the realism you know air quotes realism <laughs> um but no everyone on this show is like obviously they're they can be nasty people they can be awful people um but they are not exclusive they are not so dour and they are not so cruel necessarily um especially in their dealings with other people when they uh there are a lot of situations where they don't really uh have to be anything but just uh awful but they are like they they're willing to kind of adapt to certain situations and and treat each other differently based on those situations um they don't always pick the same option every time exactly yeah it's not just like well this character is a jerk so they're just always going to be a jerk um every character on the show i think has that capacity um but they also all have the capacity to not be that way and i'm 
I'm really <laughs> glad to be watching a show. Like, I, I don't know that I could sit through it. I honestly don't know that I could sit through a TV show where just everyone was awful all the time. Um, cause why would I, why would I want to watch that? <laughs> you well, know? honestly, it makes it, it makes, it, I would say Game of Thrones has finally allowed good characters to win and do, because on Game of Thrones, the general gist was, if they're good, they're going to die, and if they're bad, they're going to succeed, and that's just the way it is, and you just have yep. to accept it for, yeah, like, exactly. five seasons, you know? And it get, it really bothered me as a viewer, because I was like, you know, it's not, in, it, the other, so, it's depressing, just generally, but it's also uninteresting if you always expect them to do the same thing every time, you know, not to spoil anything, but if Ramsey Bolton is always going to do the absolute worst thing he could always do in every situation and never be different, then he's not an interesting character. Yep. He's always going to be the same. Exactly. Like, exactly. to compare Ramsey Bolton and Al Swearingen, it's like a night and day. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's not even close. Which is funny, because one of my you know experiences with the show before watching is that Al Swearingen is always on those like lists of the best TV villains. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, so far, I don't, I don't see him as a villainous character. Mm-hmm. He's certainly a yeah. mean guy, um, and he's done some nasty things. But like, I don't see how you can really classify him as a villain any more than any other character, necessarily. I mean, like every other character, he's kind of out for his own well-being, but he's just as much out for the well-being of the town. Um, and whether that means, you know... Although that may be for a selfish reason. Ultimately. Well, exactly, yeah. And, and, and what makes him maybe come across as villainous is because his reasons aren't as noble as, like, uh, Dr. Cochran's, for instance. Mm. Um, but yeah, exactly. I don't... I, and, you know, we'll see how it goes. I, I, I'll i see how it goes, I guess, and where he, <laughs> he goes. But I don't see him as villainous, really, in any way. Um, no, you make an excellent point, and I actually... I haven't seen him on, on lists of... Maybe maybe I've seen it on like one, maybe on like IGN or something. But in general, I think um, I never really viewed Al as much of a, a a villain. And I think every character and every pairing, a, any character that comes across, that let's put it this way, any character character that could be seen as a villain has an interesting relationship. Generally speaking, and I don't want to. I don't want to foreshadow anything. There are some just genuinely terrible people, and there are people who are like always. Like I don't think Jane's ever going to be a villain of anyone else's story. But I would say, even in a way, you know, she was a spoiler or you know difficult for Al when you know Al's just trying to like keep his operation under wraps, and Jane's like you know was messing things up. And and then in the case of Al, like yeah, certainly he's adversarial towards um, Bullock and and Saul and. And uh, you know a lot of people in the the town, but then you put him in a room with Sai, and Sai definitely looks like the much worse person. Yeah, in a yeah. lot of ways. And what's really cool about you know, and we're gonna get into Alan Sai in just a second, but they're always putting them in parallel situations, and then sort of offering them up to the audience to see how they handle each of those situations. And I think that's also really interesting to see as well, um, because it makes it's a way of somehow putting Al Swearingen, who, uh, while he may not be a villain, isn't, I wouldn't put in the good category of people, but it makes him somehow relatively look pretty decent. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. I find that, and I find that just interesting and everyone's got their own little thing. And then the other thing that I asked myself in this opening scene is, is Seth, you know, as I'm looking at him covered in blood, looking furious, which just, you know, the blood just amplified it um, as he kills this guy. Uh, you know, is he really a protagonist, or is he still the protagonist? Because I remember you had sort of framed him that way in the beginning, and it's like, you know. But then he does this nice thing where he wants to bury the guy, but he did kill him, 
And he did sort of take out his anger that he had about Jack McCall and everything else on this guy, clearly. And that all sort of bubbled to the surface. So, you know, everyone has their moments, I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. What's interesting about how he reacts is that, yeah, he does the classic thing where he, uh, you know, he's beating the guy to death and he's just... The show lets it go on for long enough that you, you know, can very clearly tell that he's, uh, he crosses over the, he crosses over the line where it was, uh, where what he's doing is, you can justify it. Because he was attacked. I mean, this guy did clearly want to kill him. Um, so I think you can, I don't think it's unfair to say that, uh, his retaliation, uh, was, you know, he was, he was defending himself. Um, but the show let it, lets it go past that point and into... Yeah, exactly, especially the way that it's... Uh, just the surrounding context of it. Uh, yeah, covered in blood, um, dirty, just screaming. Yeah, he looks just... He looks like a monster. He does. Um, and even though, you know, he was... Even though this was... He was defending himself, uh, like, you know, like I said, the show lets it go on for long enough with him just beating this guy's head in. Uh, that it seems just, yeah, he just, all of a sudden, he seems uh, truly terrifying and, and monstrous in a way that he never has. And it's... Uh, you know what's different about it? He was alone when that happened. I mean, he was killing this guy, but he was alone. Yeah. Nobody was there to watch. And it's when Charlie comes back that we see humanity come out again. And it makes me wonder if Seth also needs... Deadwood or the town or something. I mean, Charlie sort of represents Deadwood in a way to him, even though it's funny because Charlie just got to Deadwood like everyone else. <laughs> um, and technically he's been away for a while, but I, it, it's almost like he needs that to keep him in check. He always needs Saul to keep him in check. He needs people to practice being calm around like the, the, the preacher. <laughs> you yeah. know. And I think that it does balance him out because if he were just left to his own devices in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, he might be that horrible um, not mean, but just, you know, out of control kind of temper. Um, and it's interesting that, that we really see that only manifest when Charlie shows up again, even though Charlie's not the one who's like, we should bury him. It's, it's Seth's idea, but he says it when he sees Charlie and goes, maybe we should, you know, maybe I should rethink my, uh, my anger. Or it could just be that he woke up after, you know, having passed out and he's feeling like, um, now that his head's cleared, he just wants to bury him. So that could also be the case. But just symbolically, visually, it definitely seems to be that the town sort of reminds him of that, that side of him. Yeah, definitely. It's You're right. We, I don't know if we've ever seen him up to this point uh, really by himself. Um, the closest we got was the last episode when he goes to, uh, when he goes to the slaughterhouse where they're keeping Jack. Yep. And he just immediately snaps and you know, has his hands around his throat in five seconds. Um, so yeah, it it it's uh, you get a you get an interesting impression of characters, uh, or sometimes when you see how they in in a good show, <laughs> in a well written show, when you see how they act uh, when nobody else is around. And I've we've certainly gotten the impression by now that uh, he is not great at. Uh, keeping his anger in check. Um, and you can see, yeah, I remember last episode when he, the scene with the, uh, with the reverend, he was just like steaming, like there was smoke coming out of his ears. Um, like he was not doing a great job of hiding it. And now, of course, when he has no one really to, uh, yeah, when he doesn't really have, it's a very, it's a very Wild West thing, you know? He, when he doesn't have society to keep him in check, he just, uh, when, when he has no one to, 
when he has no one around who he has to, he has to prove something to, uh, when he has nothing kind of regulating him, uh, he, yeah, he just completely uh, goes berserk. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny you say that. I actually think back to my, you know, to the first scene that, that we ever see Bullock or how we meet him in the beginning. The calmest he's ever been on this show so yeah. far yeah. was when he was had a job and was, like, it was, you know, as a lawman and he had to execute this very delicate task and he does it calmly and he ignores the townspeople's, you know, catcalling and all the rest of it in negotiation and he just does what he's supposed to do you know and just proceeds and he seems very at home in that and it's but that's as you know that's if Deadwood's sort of in the middle being alone is over here you know on the left all the way on the right would be you know being literally the enforcer of order and law in society and he seems it, that does keep him in, in in line whereas if you leave him on his own he does kind of lose it so that's this interesting he's definitely got a spectrum yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the town um, oh, yeah. itself. So, Seth doesn't actually come back to town, as we know. That'll happen next episode, according to the title. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so, we have a lot of interesting... So, like I mentioned before, we have some parallels here. Um, somebody in Al's saloon has now, at the gym, has, has now come down with the plague. Um, and what's cool is last episode we saw, I think it was, was the last episode or two episodes ago, we saw Sai have to deal with, uh, well, I guess it's not the plague, it's smallpox. He he saw smallpox, he saw Andy get smallpox, and he had to decide, you know, how am I going to deal with this? Um, and he didn't tell anyone, he didn't really deal with it, he didn't he didn't burn the blanket, but he just left it, you know, he had the, the guy was supposed to burn it and he ended up leaving it there. Um, but he didn't like deal with the situation and now it's broken out in other parts of the camp, but now we can see how Al deals with it. And Al seems to have a much better understanding of the ramifications of the reality of smallpox. He says he's been through outbreaks before, so he knows what it's like. Um, and it's just, he seems much more put together than Sai in figuring it out. Cause Sai just tries to hush everything up and keep it quiet, which is idiotic in a contagious disease situation. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just I thought that was an interesting comparison. Yeah, well, Sai is all about appearances, and we get a little right. bit we uh, that's elaborated on more uh, in his conversation with uh, with Joni later in the episode. Um, that's her name, right? Yeah, it's Joni. Okay, now because now I'm de- now I'm second guessing. I swear to God, he said Jody at one scene in this episode. And I was like, he said Jody. It's not just me. I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you, no one on the show actually knows her name. No, it's it's, it, yeah. it'll be like the character on Archer whose name changes, like, every oh, episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cheryl. Cheryl, right. <laughs> um, yeah. No, but yeah, Sai is all about appearances. Um, you know, his his uh, saloon is obviously, uh, you know, very extra, uh, extravagant, and uh, uh, it it connotes the appearance of, uh, of wealth and, uh, you know, high society. And, and in terms of every, the way everyone there dresses, too, is very ostentatious. Um, yeah, he's all about the way that things look. And his response to someone being, uh, you know, having smallpox in his hotel is to make sure nobody sees. Because, you know, goodness what it would do to his reputation. He's not thinking about the town. Uh, he's not even thinking about anyone else, uh, the lives of anyone else in his hotel. <laughs> he's thinking about what this is going to do for the way that people see his business. Um, or, yeah, where, whereas Al, who is... Uh, who uh, we learn a little bit more about 
uh, subtly in this episode in terms of his background. Um, there's an implication that he kind of, that we've gotten before, I think, that he kind of uh, that he comes from nothing, and that he's had uh, experiences with kind of the uh, darker elements of the world mm-hmm. just coming up, and that he now knows how to deal with them. Um, you know, and he mentions he has a brother. He had a brother in this episode who yep. uh, who got seizures like the Reverend does, which is a, which is an interesting detail. But yeah, he he, he like he do, he wants to deal with it. And he he'll deal with it out in the open as long as it like gets dealt with. Although, and you know, he obviously cares about appearances too, because we'll, <laughs> we can talk about <laughs> what, what he does with the uh, the uh, journalist. Which oh yeah, is, that, everything about that is hilarious. I figured, yeah, I figured you'd really like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, he's making sure that uh, everyone knows. Yeah, that... but he doesn't he doesn't announce it to the whole place either. But he does try and make an effort to gather the people who you know run the place, bring them together, figure out a plan. Not pretend like it's not happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, in regardless of his feelings towards those people, too. Like, I don't think he has any love for Saul, or certainly the Reverend. I don't think he, you know, he he's clashed with, with Saul, obviously, in the past. I'm still pretty sure he probably does not trust him. Um, but he is aware that he can uh, help in this situation. So he, and and, well, and the reverend he has can. money, which I think everyone is just at that point. It's anyone who has any money, except for the reverend. Although I I I guess he has the reverend there more for messaging and less for for cash. But for the rest of them, they're actually people who can provide real money to the. Yeah, um, but again, it's it's not like a pride thing, you know. Like I, it's not like a thing where he's like, well, I can't go, you know, asking him for to. Mm-hmm. I can't go asking him for money. It's like he he acknowledges that this is bigger than his personal feelings, basically. Um, which is interesting, again, for a character who is so often presented uh, outside of the show more than in it as a really... as a, as a bad guy. Um, a lot of the traditional traits of a bad guy, Al doesn't really uh, exude. And that pride is, is one of them. He's certainly, I think, a proud individual in many ways. Um, but he is not so... He is not so prideful that it kind of that it consumes him and that it doesn't uh gets in the way of exactly that it, that it gets in the way of what he acknowledges needs to be done um i really like that about him and it's it's on great display here yeah so um, at the risk of a, a weird double back in a way that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense but i'm going to say it anyway so a lot of this is about sort of keeping the order in the camp and just visually the transition um from the very opening scene when uh seth gets knocked out I just just echoing what we were just talking about with Seth and his the fact that he's in the middle of nowhere and there is no society. When he gets knocked out, the shot has it such that the ground is at an angle and the tree is at an angle in the scene, forming this weird like acute angle in the scene. And then as Seth falls over, he also sort of meets that and and everything is askew. And we had mentioned that before, um, that sort of broad idea. But that scene, as he passes out, is immediately cut with the saloon with, with the gem and everything. It's so obvious in the scene and it's something I've never noticed before. Um, so a lot of times, just as a little bit of background, a lot of times in, in something like German expressionism, which is something that um, makes me sound like a pretentious idiot, but the <laughs> in German expressionism, but specifically in something like, um, or, you know, how it's been iterated on and it's, think of any Tim Burton movie, right? They use a lot of these, um, angular lines to give a sense of foreboding and dread and discomfort. Um, and it can really just be like, think of Gotham in the Batman movies. That's a really good example. 
Um, but they, you know, that that was that's a theme that's been a thing for a long time. It's why we, I think, I would imagine that's probably why Dutch angles are still a thing. You know, where we use those to sort of convey a sense of uh, discomfort, uh, generally speaking. And um, so we have that scene, and it's immediately contrasted with, like I said, with with the saloon. Um, and we don't think of Deadwood as being a orderly place, but if you look at that that immediate cut, all the bottles are straight up, all the lines on all the wood and all of the picture frames and all of the chairs and everything are all straight in perfect grids all around the whole shot. And it just draws this immediate contrast between something that's sort of askew and crazy, which is being alone in the frontier, and Deadwood as almost a symbol of rigid order, which is very different and then sort of sets the tone for the whole episode where they are trying to maintain order and not induce panic, not have basically that those askew sort of angular lines infects the city in a way. <laughs> and I just, I thought that was really interesting. Um, well, I remember the I last think... episode when, um, when Dan is rearranging everything for the trial and, mm. and Al is getting very, yeah, he's very antsy about it clearly. And he's like, don't do anything that you can't put back. Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's, he, Al is very clearly, uh, like we've talked about in the past, he's all about order. He's all about, especially control um, but his own control. Exactly, not, yeah, and, right. and uh, you know whether or not that has any bearing on what's good for the people around him. You know, different story. But mm-hmm. I, you know, it seems like in the case of what you're talking about, uh, he's right in this instance. His idea of order is, uh, if his idea of, of order and control is getting the vaccine and getting, you know, and just fixing the problem, then he's not wrong. Um, and you know, the lengths he goes to to uh, maintain his his grip on the town are extreme and kind of unjustifiable in some cir- in some circumstances, um, but the ends uh, the ends of those uh, you know of those actions are not always like uh, are not are not always as unjustifiable as what he's doing to uh, to attain them. Mm-hmm. No, I agree, and I think it's almost you almost appreciate him more as the show goes on. You're like, wow, this place is really hanging by a thread. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of amazed it's, it's held on this long. Like clearly there's not an abundance of brain power in the, t- in the town <laughs> to keep things together. Yeah. Um, you have people in positions of power who don't know what they're doing. Like Evie Farnham, uh, who just, I mean, I don't know how he made it as far as he has, <laughs> um, but mostly by writing Al's coattails. But imagine if he were on his own or if he had, you know, endeavored to try and run the town. I mean, it just never would have worked. Um, so yeah, no, I, I completely agree that it's, you definitely do have an appreciation for him as, as time goes on. Um, so yeah, so I like, I like when Al is, so he's very frustrated when, when he finds out that Sai had this case of smallpox and no one said anything. Um, and then I also uh, found that there's an interesting scene that I wanted to get, since we're talking about Al's personality. What do you think of the scene where He's talking to that one prostitute who had found the person who had contracted smallpox, and she doesn't want to work, or she's feeling upset, or she thinks she might have contracted smallpox. Um, and his and her encounter with with Al. Do you remember the scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like I I like how uh, he's obviously very uh, gruff with her as he is with all the prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is also like reassuring to her. Um. And in a way that, like, again, it's like he's not lying when he says that she might have been inoculated to it if she, if her family has had it right. in the past. Um, 
you know, but he's almost justifying it to himself, though. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. But he, again, it's another thing where it's like he's not, uh, he's not making that up, you know, just to just to calm her. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's also, you know, also the fact that like he's saying it, um, is is significant. The fact that he's not just. Uh, like if he knew that and he didn't say it just cuz he didn't care how she felt and she had to work that'd be different um but he is willing to kind of give her that uh give her that hope and again one that's based in reality probably um uh, i don't know how smallpox works i assume that i assume that he's not entirely wrong um in what he's saying but yeah, and again and he says like he concludes with something like uh you can stick to hand jobs for a week you know it, it's it is it is nice. He's acting nice on the Al Swearingen uh, sliding scale of nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's funny that you because I was thinking about this and contrasting it a bit with uh, the scene with uh, a bit later with with Cy and Joni. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but what's also interesting about the scene is I c- it was very hard for me to tell if this was practicality or sympathy, and even if it's practicality for why he you know he sort of relents. Um, uh, if it's practicality, whether it's because he's like, well, to be honest, she might have been been infected, and I'd rather not have inf- her infecting random other people in the, the town. So if she sticks to one thing, then maybe she won't infect more people. The other possibility is that it's practicality of, you know, if I let her tone it down for a bit, she won't. She'll be doing something, and then she'll just get back on the bandwagon again a little bit later, or get back on the wagon again a little bit later. And so it's... It's not clear. There's no evidence in this scene to say that it was very personal or if it was a completely just a, a practical matter. But um, the end result is, you know, he didn't threaten her. So I guess that's better than um, what we get from Psy, which is pretty much over uh, threat to Joni's well-being. Um, yeah, so I found that I found that interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so to talk a little bit about um, Reverend Smith. I, this is, this performance is killing me. <laughs> it's so good. When uh, uh, Johnny shows up to his tent to ask him to come to the meeting, um, this entire, deli- his delivery throughout the scene is so good. He, he, he looks like, because now, especially since we have the seizure thing in the back of our head, the back of our heads, so maybe it forces us to read into little bodily movements, but he just conveys his... He's trying to keep it together on the surface, but clearly we know that the seizure is coming. Um, we, we later learn that the seizure was, was sort of coming, but we know that he's just recovering from one, certainly. And so he just... And his his earnestness and how he delivers... And how he's, like, trying to process new information when he's also trying to figure out why he's having seizures and he's like wait like he wants me to come to the saloon why what i'm having seizures what <laughs> <laughs> but he's just willing to go along with it anyway and johnny's useless has no information on what's going on anyway um they're ordering fruit that's basically all he can he can contribute <laughs> um and then he comes to this meeting where you know they're, they're trying to figure out what to do about a, you know a, a smallpox outbreak but you know, it certainly has these biblical connotations for sure. Uh, and I think that's that's not lost on him. And he does specifically say, you know, we can head off the apocalyptic uh, um, sort of tendency people have when something bad happens, uh, which is which is nice. And then he has this seizure in front of everyone. 
uh, which is, I actually think of probably a good thing because now people are actually paying attention. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think people are sympathetic to him because you know he's never done anything wrong. Nobody has a bone to pick with the the reverend. They just some people are like, I, you know, I don't care about religion, but. Um, Although and, and, I, I do like Al's initial reaction when this, as soon as it happens, he's like, he has this moment where he's like, oh, f- great. Now there's yeah. this. Now I got to <laughs> deal with this. Right. <laughs> no, but he is sympathetic. Like, like I said, he says, like, he, you know, I had, a, I, had a, I had a brother who did the same thing. Um, he knows he knows not to put the uh, metal spoon in his mouth. Um, right, yeah, that was really interesting. He's, like, too. treating him, you know, he, he is putting in the effort to, to treat him correctly. Which is curious, because yeah, there's nothing to suggest previously that he cares, you know, one iota about the Reverend. Um, oh, yeah, not at all. No, but oh, and by the way, I gotta say, we talked previously about Davis Guggenheim um, and how his direction was a little, uh, it wasn't bad. Uh, it, I think everything on this show is certainly better. It is above par for television, um, but the shot of everyone standing over the reverend at the end of this scene is so good. Like, I love this shot. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you noticed it too. Like, I had, I had to pause the episode just to look at it and just like, it's take actually it in. Good. Spoiler alert, it's going to be the featured image for this post, and I had to go back and take it myself because <laughs> the official HBO site doesn't have this image from the, scene, from the episode for some reason. But it's so good. Yeah, it looks like a Renaissance painting. Um, <laughs> it does. It really does. And yeah, it's just like, I, it really just uh, struck me. The composition of it's extraordinary. It's fantastic, yeah. And um, and I love his line there. He says, "You could have just said amen." <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Um, so yeah, so so we have this scene, which prefaces so a bunch of people give money. Um, I like that Al's unimpressed with how much money Farnham's willing to give. Oh, that was hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this all this all sort of uh, predicates the the newspaper article. And uh, I feel like the show has something to say about the state of journalism. Yeah, well, I was going to say, <laughs> um, you and I are both of the editorial persuasion. Um, so this <laughs> scene where Merrick has to deal with like this uh, uh, trio of editors like pouring over <laughs> his every word as like, I've been on both ends of that situation, I feel like. Um, you know, I've been the person who's had to like stand over someone's shoulder and be like uh, you know i really feel like this word this one word should be changed right, right. um but i've also been in the you know writer's position of like like come on you we don't it's fucking it's it's fine it's good can i just can we move on yeah right. <laughs> um you know so i'm sympathetic to both to both sides obviously although you know al's suggestion that he uh instead of gratis he say free gratis um, <laughs> yeah. It was pretty funny. <laughs> it's really amusing. Um, I know, and then he points out it's a redundancy, and then Farnham has to like translate that too. <laughs> and, and it's not clear that he even had to translate it. Like Farnham, it's almost it's almost like Farnham only was the one who he only processed that word after everyone else, and then felt like he needed to tell everyone like, oh, for all of you still trying to figure out what he yeah, just exactly. said, <laughs> you know. Um, and then they just change it to free. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does raise, you know, it raises so it clearly. I feel like they must have had somebody who knew what it was like to work in journalism. Oh yeah. Um, because it's so specific that, you know, the argument over it, should you use a bigger word or a smaller word or a more complex 
phrase. I mean, we worry about this at Movie Fail all the time. I've been accused <laughs> many times of using, let's say, the gratis instead of the free. Um, and, you know, it's it's inevitable that the people are going to be like, well, we try to show off big words. And then on the other hand, what's the point of, you know, wordsmithing if you aren't able to come up with good words to use? And so you have this weird uh, dichotomy. And this that's exactly what comes up in the show. And Al even brings it up later when he's talking um, at the bar when he's when he's going over his you know, the story. Um, but the other thing I find really fascinating about this is Al is the most interested in this. And it's not clear if he just likes seeing his words in print, you know, because he defends his own. He's like, you know, that part, that was me, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's very invested in that. But they're all invested in the newspaper in a way that should make any journalist uncomfortable because <laughs> it's like they're either like, you know, there's some power in the newspaper, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> And I think they do see the potential there, which could uh, raise interesting flags in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I love, first of all, I just love the fact that Deadwood has its own newspaper. Uh, just this yep. tiny little, like, frontier camp. Um, but it has, he has, like, a printing press. And also, by the way, um, when Al says <laughs> that they should add a question mark to the headline, and Merrick's like, wait, it, it's, it's printed. Yeah, we're it's done. done. <laughs> so it's so accurate too. Yeah, it's so accurate. And I wonder also, you know, you say it must come from someone's experience. I wonder how much resemblance this bears to like being in the t- being a TV writer and having to deal with like oh, network maybe, notes. Yeah. I think that probably yeah. I think that probably translates to some extent. Well, and it's frustrating too because I mean, I, you know, I'll say this very broadly so as not to offend anybody in particular, but you know you'll get hired or asked to write something or you'll be a writer for something. And it's like, and I, you know, it, it, everybody who writes at movie film, I'm sure is going to laugh at this because I'm a very hands-on editor. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, but like, you know, you hired like as a writer, you're like, you hired me to write. And it's yep. like, how many rounds of editing are we going to go through before <laughs> you wrote it? And why did you even bother in the first place? You know, if you wanted to write it, then you, then write it. Um, and so, you know, we have Merrick who's trying to get this stupid story together and he's getting all these critiques and inputs from all these different people. And it's like, you know, he's the journalist. So, mm-hmm. you know, and it's his printing press. So you can decide, you know, what you want to do, but ultimately that's why he's there. And it's just that relationship is so true to the real world that i just uh, yeah i and I, I imagine it probably is also true for any any writing profession although yeah the um, scene later when al is reading the paper i think is some deliberate journalism commentary um when he's talking about how oh you, why would they you know basically he's like why aren't they you know uh pandering to the uh pandering to the readers instead of uh just instead of writing uh, more honestly i guess um and then someone else chimes in and he's like why don't they why didn't they print the baseball scores or something uh, oh, why, yeah, why yeah, aren't yeah. they talking about yeah, sports? Yeah, that's what Dan says. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which again, it's like that feels like a very, that feels like a, uh, it feels like modern commentary from the show. Uh, in terms it, of any, I'm trying to again, like this is back in uh, 2004 too, which is obviously a different uh, climate. Journalism was hmm. very different then than even it is now. Far um, less digital, for sure. Well, exactly. Yeah, I and mean, we, you know. The state of journalism is even is in a very uh, <laughs> precarious place at this exact moment, in a way that it wasn't in 2004. Although I bet if you go back to I bet if you go back to 1954, you'd find people saying that journalism was you know uh, on the on the verge of complete collapse. 
Um, you know, this is just one of those. That's one of those complaints that uh, just never goes. It, away. Yeah, it just recurs <laughs> throughout history, and no matter what, someone's always going to be saying it. Although I feel pretty again, and this is, I, I'm gonna be complicit in that when I say that I don't think it's. I think in 2016 we're coming by it honestly, <laughs> uh, yeah. to some extent. But yeah. you know, so but yeah, so I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that for that. But commentary. I do think it does say something interesting. So we're we're also talking about this as if like an editor and and a writer. These aren't editors. These are business people. Yeah. Who pay yeah. for ads in the newspaper, and I think that's also something that you know the ethical lines there, on you know, don't talk about it. You know, do you don't want to induce panic? Do you? No, of course not. I don't panic well yeah exactly i mean we're coming off journalistically we're coming off the uh the shuttering of gawker and um i don't want to i don't want to get too like i don't want to get like very political all out just throw them all under the bus (laughs) well no but like the reason the reason that gawker closed is because a billionaire didn't like them um so he engineered a lawsuit to bankrupt them like that's why that happened he didn't like what they printed about him, and to be honest, what they printed about him was unethical. To be fair, they—I mean—they outed him as gay. Yeah. And that's obviously a bad thing to do. But then his response to that was to, you know, concoct this Machiavellian plan over years uh, to completely destroy them. And journal, as you know, that's terrifying. If you're a journalist, the idea that a very rich person could destroy an entire outlet, you know, for personal reasons. That's horrifying, and it is. It is. I think Gawker probably pushed the boundary of what is. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) no, I'm Uh, certainly not denying that. Um, but but you know, but still, I think that's. I mean, I think that's true. A lot. I mean, just just not to randomly throw out names here, but you know, the the CEO of Amazon owns the Washington Post, Mm. and you know, billionaires in in Las Vegas are trying to get in on uh, certain newspapers there, and. You know, they're all owned by companies, and you always have that question of, you know, where is that line? And, and a lot of people feel that that boundary is very strong between the owner and the, you know, sort of the, the executor, but uh, or the paper itself. And, you know, who knows? You know, where the, there's no one could know that except the people who work there. But, you know, there's always that question, and there's always that, that uh, and it's certainly, you know, throughout politics, but just even the past year or so, that's a question people have asked many times, and it's certainly something floating in the air. It's just interesting to see in this show where you have, you know, <laughs> um, there is no ambiguity that the business people in town are all standing around telling a journalist what to write, which mm-hmm. is exactly not what's supposed to happen in the <laughs> real world. Um, but undoubtedly, you know, probably did and, and probably does in, in some spheres, depending on, you know, where you're looking. So, yeah, it's just an oddly... Uh, prescient moment uh if this were to have really happened i also wonder if this was a real newspaper in the town um we have a few apparently deadwood experts who listen to this yes uh, and we uh, we love you so much uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm shocked I'm, every week when i see those comments yeah felt pelt particularly on uh on reddit always has lots of insight um and uh so in any case i'm sure you'll probably have an answer to this but the way these stories oh, are Oh wait, written... I'm I'm going to beat you to it. Holy crap. Um what? that yes, that was absolutely real. Um now the it's called The actual story? Well, no, I mean the, the newspaper. Oh, um, wow. Now it's called the Black the Black Hills Pioneer. Um It's still around? Uh let's see. They have a website. I mean, oh my god. 
But it says right here, um, a newspaper published in Spearfish, South Dakota, founded by A.W. Merrick. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. They have, yeah, this website is current. That's crazy. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's 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 really cool. Yeah, that is, I mean, a lot of papers have been around since around that, that time or, or earlier, so it's not like it's, but it's just, that's so crazy to think about. I wonder what they thought of this scene. Because it doesn't exactly, they don't paint Merrick in a bad light, but it also doesn't, it's not a great look to have, yeah. you know, Al and Cy and all the rest of them deciding what's in the paper. Well, it must be weird to have the found, yeah, the founder of the paper you work for. Like, he, yeah, he's a character on the show. He doesn't yeah. just exist to write the paper. Like, he talks about, he talks about like taking up drinking again earlier in the episode. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a, you know, he's a fully fledged uh, presence yeah. uh, in the, in the narrative. That's so. Fu- this show really, this never ceases to amaze me. Um, just how much of the show is like for real. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, um, not to, again, not to jump ahead, um, you know, narratively, but I believe the events that happened to Reverend Smith are just like his, his, you know, ex- um, what he does in this, in this series. I think it's pretty true to real life. He was a real person. Um, so there's, there's a lot of that sure. element of it too. Like they definitely did their research in, in making the show. Um, you also have some interesting elements. We, we learned last week that the, um, uh, so as I, I think I've mentioned in the past, um, David Milch was originally going to do a, a show about Rome. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think St. Paul was going to be a character in it. And the, the Reverend's sermon last episode that we talked about is, um, is, is about Paul or from Paul or something like that. I don't, I don't know. It was it was related in, in some way to that. I, I'm not a uh, an expert on the New Testament by any stretch of the imagination. But um, he, so he, there's a lot of there's a mix of real world things, obviously drama, and then you know elements from this other show that David Mills wanted to make and couldn't because of Rome, which was already a show that was coming to HBO. So it's just interesting to see how all these elements manifest. Um, I think. I think that about sums up for the plague uh, elements. Um, I just really love that it, it ends on that, and it's such a it's such a quiet end. It's almost actually, you know, what it reminds me of the end of uh, uh, No Country for Old Men. Oh yeah, totally. Right. You yeah, know, where, definitely. With the him describing the dream, right? Yeah, yeah, and he's but he's reading a newspaper. I think in that scene. Yeah, <laughs> he is. That's right. And so I just was thinking, I was like, and it just ends on this like weirdly. You know, it's not like a big climax note. And I actually thought they were going to end on those chimes, you know, to sort of bookend the the whole episode. But then they they have this one extra sort of epilogue scene of Al reading the the, the newspaper. I just thought that was really interesting. Hmm. Um, so uh, just a, really briefly on on Cy and Joni. Um, so just as we mentioned before, there's a bit of a contrast here. So Joni approaches Ellsworth, who apparently is pretty good at making conversation and, and Joni certainly is a good salesman and uh, ends up bringing um, bringing Ellsworth over to the craps table gets him involved in that and uh, they're using loaded dice of course because you know that's something like money um, and uh, but eventually Joni starts to feel bad that she sort of she knows she's fleecing him out of money and uh, decides to try and you know persuade him to, to leave um, but all of this was sort of on her own she decided to approach Ellsworth in the first place unless I mean, she, it, it almost looks like she just noticed him um, when she first sees him. And uh, 
she's also the one who decides that she doesn't want to do it anymore, and that ends up really upsetting Sai, of course, and uh, she gets taken off the table. Um, and then they have this encounter later where she just feels bad and doesn't want to be involved. She just seems kind of depressed. Yeah, definitely. That's the word I would use for sure. Yeah, and it's it feels like this isn't what she wants to do. I also find it absurd that Sai doesn't see her value. You know, I understand that, obviously, in the world of sales, you don't tell someone, no, don't spend more money. Obviously, that is the absolute opposite end of um, the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of what you're supposed to be doing. But on the other hand, um, you know, clearly she's very good at it. She's good at talking to people, and she gives the place a much more dignified air than... You know, Sai looks like he's trying way too hard, and he's not doing much for it. She's the only one who actually looks elegant and like she shouldn't be there. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. um, and the fact that she's there certainly elevates the establishment. And he doesn't really see that value. And his weird way of expressing, I can't even tell if it's affection or not, is to then threaten her uh, to start, you know, doing her work or pulling her her, um, her weight. And I just, I just found that whole encounter very bizarre. Yeah, well, it's... It's interesting contrasting now, because now I'm thinking about what um, what Al says about Psy uh, when Psy's not around, which is like, um, he, you know, what he's doing shows, you know, that he's forward-thinking and then bold. Um, but when what Joni is doing to, uh, to Ellsworth is like, to me, like, that's, what she's doing is actually forward-thinking. Because if, uh, if she just keeps him at the table and bankrupts him, he's not going to come back. Uh, but... She knows that he has a gold claim, that he's getting gold, you know, on a semi-regular basis. Right. So if she can get, you know, if she just allows him to go, then he'll be a returning customer and he'll always have money because he has a gold claim. Um, like, he'll keep coming back. But if you just keep, you know, if you just keep running him out until you have all his money that night, um, yeah, what good is that going to do you in the long run? Um, so, like, you know... Uh, it's not necessarily. Assuming, see, I assumed it was just sentimental that she just. I think bad. it was sentimental, probably, I, and I think that's probably what the show is uh, is trying to get across. But I also got the impression that, like, I don't think she's necessarily wrong in uh, <clears throat> in telling in in trying to get him to go home for now. Well, Sai even says, you know, we've made it so that you know he'll be back. We've turned it into a long. Exactly. Long game, but it's like, why wasn't it a long game in the first place? <laughs> yeah, 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 and you know it's. It, I don't know if uh, Sai is aware at that point that uh, of what Joni uh, knows, which is that he has the gold. Um, that might have changed. Them. He might have changed his tune if he had known that. Who knows? Right, right. Because I think you mean initially when he when she first. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, and it's not clear if he sent her over in the first place to deal with Ellsworth because you know because he does have his eye on him when Joni goes over. Um, Sai is looking at Ellsworth, so it's it's not clear if that's the case. Um, or not, if he already has that information. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I certainly agree with that. And then just briefly on the on the forward thinking, yeah, it's interesting. This is something we hear about. We never actually see that Sai has these forward thinking plans about how the world works. Yeah, um, nothing he does demonstrates that. Nothing all. he does demonstrates it, except except at the meeting he says that incredibly racist thing about <laughs> Chinese people. That's right. Um, and gambling. Yeah. So that is. I guess, you know, he's a forward-thinking racist. I guess that <laughs> that's the most we can say of him so far. Um, yeah. But it's an interesting point, and it does represent, you know, there's this corner of the camp that we don't have yeah, really was, as much exposure to. I was about to say, we haven't seen that at all. I think we've barely seen this Mr. Wu guy. Um, mm. I don't think he's had any lines 
Uh, but we've had characters refer to him several times in this episode too. Yeah, it's like there's this whole part of camp with the uh, the Chinese settlers who we just haven't seen, you know, hide nor hair of. Yeah, and it's funny because they're both a big part probably of history and and that element. But on the other hand, I and again, I'm in no way a historian, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But on the other hand, I would imagine that their contact with the white frontier people is probably limited. So you have this, you know, mix of. Yes, they were there. Yes, they probably had a big role. You might even be able to make a show about just, you know, what it was like to be a Chinese person in the frontier. Um, but whether or not they interacted with the white community to any significant degree may also be diminished. It's not really um, it's not really clear. And so, you know, whether or not we get more of that later is, is certainly um, something to, to anticipate. Um, and of course, I can't can't comment on that. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so we get a little bit of uh, this story about Alma, um, which mm. begins with Al sort of condescending Farnham, which was really entertaining. Um, <laughs> oh, it's When he tries to come up with a way to go and um, get into the room and uh, to talk to Alma. And it's so funny. I mean, he's just so mean to him. And I know. <laughs> but it's kind of deserved because, I mean, Farnham can't even execute the plan that Al literally hands him. He's like, go tell Trixie that I need to talk to her and then she'll leave and then you can go in. And it does end up working, but it's not because of anything Farnham did because as he's talking to Trixie, he's like poking his head around her all over the place, blatantly making it clear that his only interest (laughs) is in talking to Alma Garrett. He's so bad at subterfuge. He's awful at it. It's amazing. And it's funny, he does actually come up with a pretty good plan later when... um, I think he sort of does it off the cuff. I don't think it was a plan, really. But when um, when Trixie shows up with the linens and says, you know, we need to get these washed, um, he sends her away to go and do it herself instead of having him do it, which was very smart. But I think that was sort of just a, a, a spur of the moment kind of thing, not not a not a drawn out plan. But I just thought that was hilarious, and I love that when Farnham comes into the room, the girl's giving him this death stare because <laughs> um, she knows full, she's beginning to definitely catch on to the relationships between the adults yeah well um, i mean we should talk about her for sure uh, yeah so, goes on yeah, with her well, by all means um i just i just want to get farnham out of the way yeah yeah i mean well it's um it's definitely something that is happening in the background and that is not commenting on but she is learning some english mm. for uh, which was as we recall kind of the entire basis of the conflict around her was whether or not she could uh she could speak to other people um, so when we first see it, it's only twice. When we first see it, uh, she's singing the song, and I kind of chalk that up to like, oh well, you know, she, you know, she can learn something by ear, basically. Uh, it doesn't mean that she, you know, knows what she's it's saying. English, yeah. It's a song, you know. She's she's just singing words. Um, but then when Jane comes back, she says, "Hi, Jane." Right. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, right? <laughs> like it's 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 cute and everything, um, and it's an interesting indicator of. Uh, of time, first of all, of how long has passed, but also kind of her relationship with the people who are taking care of her. Um, but, like, it's not a good thing that she's learning how to speak because that could reignite the entire conflict all over again. It definitely could. Um, I guess... But wasn't the whole point is... Didn't we also say that she couldn't identify the person anyway? I mean, I guess it's all, it's all over now, right? Like, Yeah. But, I mean, all everyone who was involved, dead. That's true. So I, th- I feel like at this point, you're right. Um, on some level, she could be like, the people that attacked us were white. But she couldn't go any further than that. Yeah. You know, um, 
Yeah, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how much you like Al, I feel like he's kind of made it into the clear. But she is certainly learning English, and it, it'll, it'll present some interesting, um, even just in terms of care, you know, it's, you know, taking care of somebody who's, you know, basically, um, you know, when she was, when she was still recovering from whatever happened to her, um, that was one thing that was sort of medical care then there was taking care of her when she didn't know any english which is sort of just you know she's smiling everyone's smiling and it's just sort of you know low-key once you start talking now it's like all right well now you know do we do you go to school or what there are no kids in the in the frontier town right yeah. as far as we know i don't think there's any others um right and so and there may be but we haven't encountered them uh and so it's a you know it raises the question of like where is this this kid go how are they going to learn like are you going to grow up in this environment and uh so that'll that'll definitely be interesting um so and i also the other thing the the other i guess the third spoke of this this wheel is trixie yep and how she's really at this point just openly defying al well not openly i guess she's still hiding it but al is becoming wise to the situation um, but she manages to involve Alma in this rather elaborate ruse to <laughs> convince um, to convince Barnum and and, uh, and by extension Al that she is giving uh, she's um, that Alma is is definitely hooked on this um, this drug. And uh, well, I really I like the scene when Farnham comes in and he's convinced that she's like lustful. <laughs> oh, that was hilarious! Yeah, he's, yeah, I couldn't <laughs> ask her. She was uh, she was giving me these lustful stares. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, but she's just like barely holding it together. She's like, gonna throw up again. Um, I like how, and I like how even the girl is like, you know, can tell that she's uh, like the girl thinks she's goofing around. Like because even she can see through it, and obviously right. she knows that she's actually sick. Um, right. But she's like, you know, even she can uh, tell uh, what Farnham just—he's completely oblivious. And I like that you know Alma's obviously. Very clearly, she's playing to um, that obliviousness. She's oh, probably yeah. trying to act a little uh, flirtatious because she knows he won't be able to see to see past that whatsoever. Um, yeah, I, 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 and it wouldn't have worked on Al at all, of course. No, of course, Barnum's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I really, I just, I, I found this really amusing, and uh, yeah, and I, and I like, yeah, I like that the girl seems to sort of be in on it. She's like, yeah, what? what is going on right now um so yeah this is this is a good little ruse they've got going on and then we have you know of course the fourth actor who comes in um actor as in components of this scene uh, but that is jane and so just to briefly cover her um we have jane uh walking through the camp swearing at people which by the way she's easily the funniest part of this episode i was cracking up um <laughs> she just <laughs> she's just uh, it, People are looking at her, and I love her. Maybe it's a defense mechanism, um, but she's clearly always been a little bit different than other people, and has found that you know the best approach is to just blame everything on everyone else. Like if they're looking at her, it's because they're ugly and should know that they shouldn't be looking at her. Why are they looking? At her? You know, <laughs> or whatever the situation is, it's always other other people's fault, and it's just so funny, and she's so confident that that's the that's the problem. Um, and uh, and she's she's doing and then the other thing is, she still convinced people are looking at her. So when she's going to Dot Cochran's office, and so she's making this big announcement how she's going to wait 
in his office, but no one's paying attention. No one cares if she goes in or leaves or stays or whatever. Um, and so she's sort of just talking to herself. Um, but of course, uh, we do learn this very important thing about her, which is that she seems to have absolutely no uh, ill effects from taking care of Andy. And she also recognized it as smallpox. Um, she did, yeah. She was like, "Oh, yeah, it's smallpox." It, which is, it's only only her and uh, and Cochran. They seem, they seem, and, and Al. They seem to be the only people who are able to immediately to to see what it is. Which is funny because we were talking about last episode. I think I was talking about. Um, how I was skeptical of how cognizant she was of what was going on when she met Andy in the woods, um, right. whether or not she, you know, she was aware. But apparently, and I don't know if what she was at the time, but at least by now, now that she's sobered up a little, uh, she knows exactly what was going on with him. Yeah, she. Well, yeah, and certainly as he got better, um, you know, who knows what conversation they had, or, or who knows uh, what you know he might have told her and said, "Oh, I think you know I had smallpox. Like I've seen this before." It's not really clear. Uh, he wasn't also, saying much, to be fair. No, not when we last saw him, but if he, you know, I don't know if she just immediately wandered back into camp following the last episode or if it was a, a period of time um, in there. So, because remember, we also see Seth is, is some distance out from camp. Yeah. So, you know, it's not clear what the time frame is. Um, but the other thing is she recognizes smallpox, and if that's true, then maybe she knows that she can deal with because she, <laughs> I love her exchange with with uh, with the doctor because they have this like weird relationship where they swear at each other but generally seem to enjoy each other's company or mm-hmm. want to help each other. Yeah. Because um, they're like yelling at each other and then he's like, "Well, can you help me then? Because I'm gonna have to deal with all these patients." She's like, yeah, you know, I'll, you know, I'll help you. <laughs> and and uh, and now they have this weird sort of triumvirate of the reverend who finally has something to do, which is nice. Uh, in the camp where he's not just managing funerals, but also trying to make people comfortable as they go through smallpox, which is pretty intense. Um, the doctor who's like kind of odd and apparently a drinker. And then Jane, who's, you know, I don't even know uh, how to describe her. Um, so yeah, so that's really cool. And also what's nice for Jane is she has something to do now that Bill's gone. You know, she was, you know, helping and working with Bill was her whole job. And then her job was to be sad about Bill but now she has something to take her mind off that and do something else, which is nice. Yeah, I um, like her relationship with Cochran because he's one of the few characters so far. I guess Bill is, and maybe Charlie were the other ones, um, who does not who who sees past her exterior, and yeah. uh, she goes to um, I mean she goes to lengths to make people uh, see her a certain way. Like we talk about her just wandering around the camp swearing at people. Right. <laughs> um, she's very clearly she wants to be seen a certain way. Um, but he is able to, you know, and not in a way, you know, I don't want to see, uh, I'm not saying that, like, you know, he's seeing he's seeing through that, because she, I don't, she's not faking, I mean, she's not pretending to be something she's not, this is who right. she is, but he is seeing kind of something, uh, he is seeing something deeper within her, and it's not just being, you know, put off by the way she, she uh, presents herself and the way she right. talks to people, like the way that the hat salesman was in the right, hotel. Right, exactly. Um, you know, like when he... When she says uh, smallpox, he picks up on that, and he's like, wow, well, you know, I need someone to help me. You know, it, the bare minimum of assistance that I need is someone who just who can at least see what the disease is, because apparently no one else in this town does. Right. No one else in this town is capable of that. Um, so, yeah, I like the, he's one of the few characters who genuinely, like, who is getting more out of her, who is getting something out of, uh, you know, his interactions with her. Uh 
more so than uh, than she is giving or that she is willing to give anybody. Well, and and I think that there's well, because you know, and I think that's probably why she liked Bill in a lot of ways. Cause yeah, definitely that, that value in her. Um, and, and I think what's interesting about that is, you know, there's a lot. So there's a two there's two elements to I think to to Jane's character. It's hard to describe her, right? What, what we keep like dancing around what what it is about Jane that <laughs> puts people off. Yeah, but I think the two things are. One, she doesn't present like your average woman at the time of the at the time, right? So she's yep. not, you know, either a prostitute or like a you or know a, a stay at home mom, yeah, wife, right? So that confuses people. They're like, I, "What is going on? Just go somewhere else." <laughs> and so they don't, they can't handle that. And you know, really reducing, you know, female humanity to uh, a role, and it's just, it's awful, and. Uh, Doc Cochran doesn't care at all and just sees her utility as a human being. Um, so that's important. And the other thing is, I think people are put off by the fact that she's constantly drunk, or she's at least, you know, often getting drunk. And I think that that's something that also puts people off. Not that people don't drink all the time, but one, she's a woman, and that's probably not seemly. Uh, and the other being that, you know, the usefulness of somebody who's constantly drunk is, you know, people don't feel like that's something that they can, um, someone they can rely on. And I think that's Charlie's problem with her too, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, that's definitely Charlie's problem with her. Um, although even I, even well, he has that. So, so he sees. So so Cochran sees through this and even relates to the fact that she drinks. He's like, just drink off duty, like I do. Yeah, like, oh, that was funny. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Even Charlie, I remember the. F- I think their first scene in the whole series, like he says something like, "I don't know what I ever did to make that woman so mad at me." Like, right, right. Even he is kind of caught up in the way that she presents herself to other people, and you know, she, she, I think she's very, very clear case of the kind of person who um, just keeps people at arm's length because she doesn't want to, you know, <laughs> you know, she has trouble letting people in, uh, emotionally speaking. Certainly, something that's uh, probably pretty common given the setting uh, with any character. <laughs> Um, that, that's again a very classic Western thing. Um, I've said it so many times. I feel like on this podcast, but <laughs> again to go back to the Sopranos, Tony Soprano would always talk about the strong, silent type, and right, he was talking. Sure. You know, he would talk about Gary Cooper. I think was his example. Um, she's was, not really silent. Uh, well, no, she's not. She's certainly not. She's, uh, but she is that kind of you know. On her emotions, she doesn't. She's pretty silent. Yeah, she exactly. Yeah, she. That. But you know, <laughs> she's certainly not silent in other ways. Quite the opposite. But no, she's very. Uh, She's keeping. She keeps people at a distance. She does not let uh, people kind of see her. Uh, and again, you know, it's kind of a control thing too. I feel it's kind of similar to Al. It's very much about controlling how other people perceive her, um, because she doesn't want to be kind of, you know. And again, and again, I guess being a woman, she doesn't want to be constrained by other people's expectations of her. Right. Um, so she just very, you know, as loudly as she possibly can, uh, defies that and makes sure that nobody can. You know, even if people are judging her negatively, she would rather that than people judging her based on, you know, factors that uh, are out of her control. Right, and it's actually interesting now, thinking back to that terrifying scene where Al approaches her in the tent. Yeah. Um, I think that's part of what was so pro- problematic for her about that is that she was immediately reduced to being like a little girl, again, mm-hmm. to him. And I think that's why she reacted so badly as she was, you know, he basically ignored her veneer and cut straight through to the middle of, you know, who she was. And I think that that is what freaked her out. Um, 
or not even necessarily who she actually is, but just what she's been trying to avoid or run away from or whatever for a lot of her life, especially considering whatever happened to her when she was a kid. So I think that, you know, that's why her, that's her huge problem. And then also, by the way, we do see her technically confront Al in a group of people in this episode. And she seems like she's a bit, she's able to handle it a little bit more. It's not a one-on-one intimidating, crazy situation like before, but she did tell him off in public, yeah. which was kind of nice. Um, and then she, she so she, her first stop was to make check on the girl, and turns out she's not there, um, but she does get a job, which is cool. And then she heads off to go and see uh, the, the girl at, um, at the hotel. And I think it's interesting. This So you've got these three women all looking after this kid now, or at least, you know, Jane's going to be in and out. Um, uh, it's just a very interesting dynamic they've got going on. It's like it's like three men and a baby, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but with women, and they're just from completely. You have a prostitute. You have I don't even know how to describe frontier person, um, in Jane, and then you have this this rich widow, and it's uh it's an interesting mix. Oh yeah, I also do want to bring. A, I love the moment in that scene with uh with with Cochran where she's like, oh, what do you 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 know you let a whore watch here, and he's like, come come on, <laughs> you're, you're really gonna judge other people, you know? Yeah, seriously, like. You know, and again, it's like very much um, not not he's not criticizing her based on the way that she acts, but he is, you know, he is acknowledging it in such a way that he's like, come, like, look at look at the way that you are and tell me that you're going to judge other people in any capacity. Yeah, like, seriously. Come on. Um, mostly based on the fact that she's like drunk and swearing all the time. It's like that's, you know, probably not the best yeah. for the kid. But on the <laughs> other hand. The most tender she ever is is with the girl, mm-hmm. and I think that's also really interesting as well. Um, the one I'll throw in a negative note because all we did is talking about how great Deadwood is. Um, <laughs> the one thing that's interesting, so I'm thinking about this sort of from a perspective of I, I really like that Alma has a team of people to, you know, she's building her network, especially among the female community um, in Deadwood, and that's cool. And you have these scenes that are, you know if you're using the Bechdel test to measure anything, certainly pass, and that's cool, and all that's that's going on. On the other hand, a lot of the agency we've seen characters, the female characters take has been in care-giving roles. You know, it's been in taking care of Alma, so Trixie taking care of Alma, all of them taking care of the girl, um, and it's been a lot of that. So I am interested to see if we see any more initiative and agency in other avenues that aren't things yeah. that are traditionally assigned to women anyway. Yeah, and I you know, I think this show is certainly um it's left it's it's left those avenues open for sure. I mean the first time we see Trixie is in the show is she's just shot someone in the head. Um right, true. which is not great caretaking, I gotta say. No, it's uh, not <laughs> <laughs> Um so I, I I don't think the show is uh the way that it's presented them so far, I don't definitely don't get the impression that it is interested in uh in limiting their agency in that way, which is good. Uh, but you're right; just what they've done so far certainly falls into that. Uh, it falls into that. It does, and I don't want to, uh, you know. So you say that, and then on the other hand, it's like, you know, as we've talked about in other shows, there is strength in femininity and in things that are traditionally feminine. And I would say what's interesting and what the agency that's, or what's good about the agency that say Trixie has taken, isn't that she's taking care of the kid or taking care of Alma. But that she's doing it in defiance of Al, which of course then predicates it on you know a male character in the show. But the agency took agency she took was the defiance, not necessarily the caretaking, which I mean she would do anyway. Um, and I think that that also is a is an element that you, you 
may be ignoring is is the nuance to how each of them got there. You know, why is Jane taking care of the kid? Is it in partially also in defiance of Al? Um, you know, that could that could be the case. And then Alma, well, we can't really tell if she's taking care of the kid or not because she's not really in a place to do that yet. But it'll be interesting to see what her relationship is. Um, you know, yeah, with the with the kid, and also with the other. You know, once once she's recovered and isn't addicted to uh, laudanum anymore. You know what happens with her and Trixie, um, and then uh, what happens, you know, to the girl? Is you know she's not going to live with Trixie? Is she going to live with Jane? Is she going to live with Alma? Is she going to find somewhere else to go? It's very unclear at this point. Mm. Um, all right, I think that uh, I think that that sums it up. Yeah, that about um, that about does it. Um, so yeah, next week's episode, as we said, is called Bullock Returns to the Camp, <laughs> and that yeah, that about says it. That'll probably be the. I'm trying to think. That might be the first episode where we don't have someone say the name of the episode in the <laughs> in the episode itself because I don't well I guess last episode they didn't say the trial of Jack McCall they probably said the trial and Jack McCall separately um, but yeah in this I don't think they're going to say Bullock returns to camp unless it's a headline in was it the frontier the pioneer? pioneer I think it's the pioneer the pioneer yeah Yeah. Um, alright well uh, I'll talk to you again next time alright